You're listening to a Miscellany News Production. Hey everyone, I'm Sana. Welcome to the first episode of NIST Office Hours, a new podcast where I'll chat with professors on current events and topics relevant to their fields. In this episode, I'll be interviewing Professor Copeland and her husband, Dr. Kovacs, who is an eye surgeon at Cornell Neuropresbyterian. Professor Copeland teaches sociology and STS here at Vassar. Her research focuses on the entanglement of science, politics, and nationalism in contemporary China. Today, I'll be asking Dr. Copeland and Dr. Kovacs about how the coronavirus pandemic is playing out in both Asia and the United States. Professor Copeland, how are you? <laughs> Hi, Sana. <laughs> Pleasure to see you. <laughs> nice to see you too. Can you introduce us to who you're with? Uh, yes, this is my husband, Dr. Kyle Kovacs. Hello. Um, he is currently a uh, vitreoretinal surgical fellow at Cornell New York Presbyterian. Uh, so, is it okay if I actually start asking you some questions about what's going on at the hospital? Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How is morale? with everything that's going on? Like, how are your fellow doctors and how are you doing with everything? So, first disclaimer for everything <laughs> that you ask is I am an eye surgeon, okay? Right. I have been very fortunate through this in the sense that um, I have not been redeployed to other services as some of my right. colleagues have, that they've been sent to the intensive care unit, they've been sent to the emergency department, mm-hmm. Uh, to various yeah. areas. So a I'm, lot of the residents and fellows specifically in a lot of the hospitals have right. been redeployed to services that they would not normally be working on. So okay. I'm still working in, in my normal capacity as a retinal fellow. Of course, nothing is normal right now. So not even care of eyes and it's very difficult to do that. So when you ask about morale, I'm not the person in the ICU who yeah. Wearing and and you know who's like really truly on the front lines. Although some of my patients do have COVID, and I'm running around the hospital to try to navigate and take care of eye patients in our current infrastructure amidst the crisis. Um, so again, all my answers have that that caveat. Yeah. No. That I'm I'm standing adjacent to and saluting a lot of those people, <laughs> and still very much involved in patient care and running the hospital. But I'm I'm not in the ICU or the emergency department like the primary person caring for these patients. All of that said, it's a really weird time in the hospitals. I mean, like, obviously, we've like never really dealt with a crisis like this. It's certainly not in recent years. Um, I was talking with some of the older physicians in the ophthalmology department, and they were saying parts of it felt like the AIDS epidemic when it first had it, that there was so much uncertainty. Like that was the, the, the uncertainty aspect of it was something that they were picking up, that they were kind of feeling similar to, that right. we were asking all these questions and we just don't know what's going on. How is it even being transmitted? And that degree of uncertainty about a disease like really hasn't been around for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, certainly in the United States, certainly since the AIDS epidemic. So it's like, there's so much uneasiness. It's like rare in medicine that you're like, right. I just don't know. We're, we usually have so much, cert- much more certainty. Yeah. About like planned courses of planned, action. Exactly. Like yeah. treatment paradigms that we just know, and we have the answer for how things are going to go. 
And so to have this much uncertainty is very unnerving for a lot of people. I'll also add of our, we have uh, a number of close friends who are on the front lines. Um, particularly one of my best friends is currently on the medical wards for Bellevue. Um, and so like within New York, there's kind of the private hospitals like Columbia and Cornell and Sinai um, and Montefiore. And then there's the public city hospital system, right. which is like Bellevue, Jacoby, um, Elmhurst has been the hospital that's gotten hit the worst. Uh, and so I can say that uh, traumatized would kind of be the word that... Yeah, the people people that are on the front line. I mean, it's, it's very challenging for a similar reason that we're used to being able to have certainty in, in yeah. when we manage patients and we're used to making decisions that when we know what's medically necessary, you just make the decisions here in the United States. And that's what we do the almost, you know, every time. And right now that's not what's happening. And that's true for our friend, like taking care of COVID patients because the resources are starting to go. It's challenging. But even for me to take care of patients with eye problems admits this, you know, I feel like every problem that I'm used to addressing takes, you know, 10 times as long to figure out, or you really sometimes have to offer treatment modalities that are not optimal just because of how crazy the times are. The access to an operating room, patients can't come, can't go. They may be 91 years old and super high risk and you need to limit exposures. It's, It's really... Yeah, and I think that the idea for most physicians of not being able to provide optimal quick care, whether it is that like we're running out of ventilators or we don't have ORs or some other kind of... Um, we're just not used to that here. In yeah, and like, I think there's an emotional, psychological uh, strain that comes from that. I definitely hear a lot of what you're saying. I mean, a lot of times patients look to their doctors to answer their questions and now you have your own questions that are you're trying to get answered. So that's definitely very stressful. Yeah. You maybe should describe kind of what how the OR so like because like just to give you an idea of kind of what's going on like how the number of ORs yeah so again it's very difficult right now to do even anything remotely resembling normal eye care uh one because you know the the guy who the whistleblower in China who first kind of came up with this he's an ophthalmologist the one yeah Li Wenliang is a 34 or was a 34 year old ophthalmologist so as an ophthalmologist while or not taking care of COVID patients, by definition, you're up in somebody's face very close to, yeah. to do exams. But they've been saying eye doctors and ear, nose, and throat doctors are kind of at higher risk for this, which is just the routine way that we examine patients is kind of going out the window because they're very high risk. Um, but for surgery, so Cornell, Wheel Cornell, New York Presbyterian typically ha- has uh, almost somewhere. 60 operating rooms uh, between like its ambulatory operating building or the main hospital. And right now there are three for the whole hospital, for everything. Heart surgery, brain surgery, does not matter. There are three because all of the other operating rooms have been converted into uh, ICU beds. And all the ventilators from the other operating rooms, they're on the floors and temporary. So as part of when you have an operating room, it's not just building. It's not just the physical space of the operating room, but you know, for the anesthesia, you have to have a ventilator in the room to keep it running. So that's actually one of the limiting factors for this: is that it takes an it takes a ventilator away from the ICUs to keep an operating room around. But you have to have some operating rooms because even COVID patients need surgeries and there are emergencies that come up. And so it's um, to do eye surgery, for example, right now, those three operating rooms are in an area of the hospital where eye surgeons never operate. 
ever at New York Presbyterian. And they have not done it in I don't know how long. So we had to literally wheel a microscope for eye surgeries in the tunnels underneath York Avenue from one building to another. This is like a $300,000, seven foot tall surgical microscope right, that so we had to figure out how to get across York Ave. Yeah. So it went through the tunnels to like sit outside the OR and built like an IOR war room in one of the other yeah. rooms in the hospital with all the equipment that you go and you take everything and you bring it down to this wing of the hospital and literally like build an IOR, do the surgery, deconstruct it and take it out. And so it takes what would normally be like an hour surgery and it makes it like an eight hour experience to try to like put everything together to do it. And that takes away an anesthesia doctor who could be in the ICU otherwise. It takes away nursing staff who could be in the ICU otherwise. And because of all the, the difficulties of all the resources getting pulled, every surgery that's being done at the hospital is being reviewed by an ethics committee to validate plural that. Tiers plural tiers, yeah. actually, of ethics committee. Like for it to even get to the ethics committee to come from our department, my chairman has to review everything. And he reviews the chart, the record, like make sure that it's really... And that it's emergent, that it's actually going to significantly improve someone's quality of life. Actually, we're not even talking quality of life. We're talking... Like, will they go blind? We're talking life and limb right now. Will they lose the eye or would they have permanent vision loss, kind of like losing a limb if you don't do surgery? So it's, it's, it goes through an ethics committee to even decide whether or not you can do the surgery. It's anonymous so that no one can... um, you know, so that the, the the ethics committee, it's a big secret as to who's on it because they don't want people to be held personally accountable for denying someone's surgery um, in terms of like the interpersonal relationships, but also legally. So when when did these changes come to be? And do you think that they happened at the appropriate time? I would say... Um when did they happen? It was March. The, the weeks are blurring together. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, it was like March, that first week in March when things were really starting. The second week. Right second after week. the second week, right after yeah. the first weekend in March. Your first week of spring break was when uh, they were things, having daily meetings escalating. Things accelerated. Yeah. And I will say that um, my department, even at, at New York, or, you know, at Cornell, uh, was actually like one of the first departments to really start to restructure clinical practices. And even that, I felt like we were a week, like a week behind where we should have been or could have been. And I don't mean that as a criticism, obviously, of my department, because we were so ahead of the institution. But I felt like, you know, as Abby will say, like, we've known this was in China and that it was coming, right? We, we've yeah. known this was coming for a long yeah, time. Yeah, and also like a lot of the first cases that were getting picked up in New York were not known travel cases, right? It was not that someone had come back from Italy, that they had come back from China. It was community spread, which meant that it was already out in in uh, New York in a pretty like widespread manner. It just wasn't showing up in tests yet because we weren't testing. And that's, I think the biggest, the biggest is not actually, it's not actually an institutional problem. It's, it's actually the fact that we did not have the testing to recognize how much this was spreading around the community in that like late February, early March. And, you know, really we are, I think by we, I mean, you know, the CDC, most health organizations were acting as if this was a disease that was still being, you know, transmitted 
you know, by traveling or specific access. And whereas really we had community spread, which is, I mean, kind of diffuse, disseminated, asymptomatic carriers that was happening well before I think we were able to recognize it. Um, the fact that we were unable to test people outside of the people who had known contacts or direct exposure during that like last week of February, first two weeks of March was a big deal because it, it meant that just there were all these unrecognized cases that were really starting to build up starting to build up we know that the disease is transmitted on an exponential curve right so like catching failing to catch that early er, Mm -hmm. uh that early period um results in really detrimental outcomes as you go along just because it proliferates so rapidly and like you said we knew that there was something going on in china why do you think it took so long to get testing and why is it still hard the, the, the why hard to get testing is, you know, that's that's right. a bigger question than than I can answer because that's I don't make tests. I'll, I'll tell you when the testing became an issue, and it became a local problem to solve. You know, like the difference there was a lag in which suddenly I think people were still expecting a federal or a CDC or a central response to happen, and when yeah, that didn't happen, happen, when the institutions started to do it, it started to go quickly, but that was late. So like um, that second week of March, suddenly, you know, my chairman, we do ophthalmology. We have some empty lab space across the street in the main hospital. And we literally tore walls down and imported these huge testing, high throughput throughput testing devices to, that's part of why, you know, our hospital in New York started to really accelerate the number of cases is because they were, had high testing capabilities, but that was done at an institutional level because, the tests were coming in from the CDC or other places. Yeah. So, but, um, but that means that it happened later because it was, again, like yeah, I told everyone you. Everyone was waiting on the federal government, basically. Yeah. Um, and for a while, legally, it was only the CDC test, the yeah. federal government test that was considered to be viable. Um, but yeah, I will echo Kyle's sentiment as well that like New York actually uh, still, I think, has the highest testing capacity in the country per, in terms of a, a state-to-state um, and so there were periods, it's an interesting STS question, right? Because yeah. it actually becomes a question of how you're creating the reality of the epidemic with yeah. the data, with the testing. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, like clearly New York is the hot zone and that's not surprising given density, given travel habits, given all sorts of factors, but also it was showing up much earlier because New York was running like 120,000 tests when Massachusetts next door had only run 8,000 as a state. Uh, you're talking like a full order of magnitude difference. Um, Like we had been talking to some friends who are physicians at MGH and they were like, yeah, we're still only running 18 tests a day uh, at like, you know. I remember the exact number, but it was was multiple orders of magnitude lower than what we were running uh, here. And that's like the largest kind of most prominent hospital uh, in the state. And so, yeah. And so, so I guess this would be more towards like like the, this would be more towards STS in Asia question, but what was South Korea doing differently? Because I read that they were giving out so many tests and they have actually kind of got it under control. You know, how does their system differ from ours in the United States? Uh, Basically, anyone who wants to get tested can get tested. Uh, But that actually, from a public health standpoint, is immensely beneficial because you're able to kind of identify the contours of where the epidemic is hitting very quickly. You're capable of doing effective contact tracing. And so that allows you to actually get it 
under control before it again blows up on that exponential yeah. curve. This is just a, like a quick aside. I actually heard something pretty interesting that they're doing in Germany. Part of why I think Germany said it's had comparatively some lower. Yeah. There, it's not just the number of tests. They actually are taking tests, and I think it's the PCR swabs. Although I don't remember exactly how, but they're taking multiple. They'll like they're clustering people mm-hmm. that they're testing. So they'll say test a whole cluster, ten people who are in like a contact zone, and run that with one reagent. And yeah. they'll do that. So it allows for larger population sampling. And if somebody comes back positive, they're like, oh, okay, we need to actually test those 10 people. Yeah. It allows you to survey a huge number of people with limited, you know, the reagents are often the limiting factor. Exactly. For these. Yeah. So, so there's, there's ways to be a little bit more creative about population testing that I don't think we have been employing here, but have been done elsewhere. And that was a very creative one that I thought was a good, very good one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like that, right. I mean, all, basically like the U S is at uh, a pretty far end of the spectrum in terms of effectiveness of their testing regime, shall we say. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, South Korea, uh, it's part of it's been just more testing, easier availability. Some of it's what the, gov- the government is making it clear how you get tested, right? Part of the problem in the U.S. response has even just been lack of clarity on who could get tested, where they could get tested, when they could get ke- tested, um, there's still severe limitations on even being able to access a test uh, in the U.S. But like the implementation of that broader testing regime, as we've talked about before a little bit in class, also is somewhat contingent on also having a government who has the capacity to implement that. I mean, I don't mean to be pointing fingers at the federal government, but like that's some they clearly did not organize themselves to make that kind of uh, approach viable in the U.S. Cuomo, for example, is very much so as he's trying to talk about getting people back to work um, about revving up testing capacity. But right now, there's limited supply of reagents. There's limited supply of swabs. There's everything's limited. Yeah. And, and when we talk about testing, I mean, there's two phases of testing that we're talking about now, right? right? So uh, mostly Abby and I are talking about the PCRs, which is detecting infected patients. Yeah. Patients yeah. that are acutely affected where you're sampling. When you're trying to contain the, when you're trying to contain the outbreak and do contact tra- right. tracing, that's what you're looking at. Right. So that's critical for the early phases. Yeah. And the other thing that's, as Abby's talking about reopening and the other testing that's becoming a little problematic now is you need to know who has been affected. In fact, who has antibodies. So we talked about yeah. that, like, because there is an undertested front part to the curve, mm-hmm. although you go to the New York Times and you see that the case count, right, or presumed case, that is going to be way under the actual number, just given the, the limited. But we don't know the denominator yet at all. We really don't even have, and there's huge disagreements about how many people were infected asymptomatically and what the denominator is. And that denominator is incredibly important for figuring out how quickly you can reopen. So if, you know, 50% of the patient was infected and asymptomatic, well, then kind of you can just go and reopen, right? Because you're going to have herd immunity. Everybody, you can open the doors. Most people already had it. They carry antibodies. Again, presuming that having antibodies means that you're immune. Which is a whole other question. On but for most, <laughs> conventionally, for most problems, usually if you are carrying antibodies, antibodies it means you have developed immunity to the problem and, and, and you're good. But if it's only like 5% of the, or 10% of the population, you know, that's a much different discussion to be yeah. had. And so that not knowing the denominator, which is again, the testing problems, both the upfront testing and also now the, ser- the lack the of serological testing, testing yeah. 
is uh, kind of a, you can see where that would start to have major implications for policy. So it feels like for things to start reopening, you really need this information, and but yeah. we're, we we just we just don't have it. <laughs> so so here's the difference, right? Like yeah. I hear it in the language, you hear them say "dip the toe in the water," right? And that's because you don't know what temperature the water is. That's yeah. why you dip your toe yeah. into it. So that's that's why literally right now it's like dipping your toe in water because you have no idea yeah. what's going on out there. Right. And the, the idea is the temper the testing is basically like a thermometer, right? Like yeah. it would give you some sense of what is has actually gone on out there. So it's a little less just dipping the toe in the water and seeing what happens if you're going to lose your toe or not. Yeah. And so I, I know, Professor Copeland, that you were kind of following China's development closely. Could you tell us a little bit about what's going on there now? Like what are their fears right now? And I guess where are they in compared comparison to us? Yeah, um, so they're definitely feeling as though they're on the back end of this crisis. Needless to say, things have been, uh, were effectively contained um, in terms of how the outbreak was looking in China. It was largely in Hubei province and specifically around like the city of Wuhan, as we all kind of know at this right. point. There is no more quarantine in, in Hubei. There is, as of I think it was April 5th, uh, Wuhan was again opened. They're um, increasingly concerned about the economic ramifications of this, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, China had actually, it was just. To, today, today, I think, yeah, yeah published absolutely. their quarterly economic data. But basically, like, the economy shrank uh, for the first time in a couple decades. Mm -hmm. uh, again, China is this very, like, high economic growth. The government sees economic growth as being really intertwined uh, with social stability and their capacity to keep uh, governing with this kind of state legitimacy. Um, and so this is very concerning. Um the number of cases is not, new cases is not zero. There has been uh, some small clusters. One is between, uh, on the border with Russia and uh, northeastern China. Um, and then there have been other cases that are being brought in by people coming back into the country. So they've closed their uh, borders to foreigners, um, including those who hold residency permits, kind of like similar to like a Chinese green card, though it's slightly more contingent than that. Yeah. But there, there are still new cases coming in, for example, from uh, Chinese students who are coming home after their university was uh, shut in the US. Right. Um, and so they've adapted a very aggressive policy about, again, trying to contain those cases that currently when, uh, in addition to not allowing foreigners to enter the country, um, even for Chinese nationals, they are now required to go to a hotel for 14 days and pay up front for that cost. It's, I think, uh, 4,900 kwai, um, which is like a, mm, probably like around $700, $800 US to stay in a hotel and be monitored for um, 14 days. There's, uh, as you may have seen in recent newspaper articles, etc. The manifestation of the disease now being a threat from the outside mm -hmm. uh, has also really manifested with unprecedented levels of uh, xenophobia and nationalism yeah. in China. For example, there's a significant African, um, yeah. African immigrant population, particularly in cities like Guangzhou, and they are kicking them out. Uh, there have been instances of, instances of them getting kicked out of hotels, of them being required to go for testing, even though they haven't left the country, simply based on skin color. Mm -hmm. um, 
There's also, uh, prior to the country closing their borders to foreigners returning completely, um, for foreigners who were coming back, they were um, forcing them to do qu- home quarantine, but were like installing these devices that were linked uh, with, I think it was linked with Wasteen actually, um, uh, WeChat. Uh, but basically there was a device that was tracking how many times you were opening, the, opening and closing the door during the day. Um, to again, to again, make sure that people actually are obeying the quarantine order that they're not, you know, sneaking out to go buy groceries a couple times a day. That being said, however, I think there is a sense of optimism and a sense of pride over the fact that like clearly actually the state was more effective than many other countries are proving to be at, uh, containing this, um, I'll also add, actually, that there is deep, deep concern about what the effects of the pandemic are going to be on U.S.-China relations going forward. Yeah. Um, particularly for those who work in the tech community. Um, and whether, you know, connectivity and interdependence is increasingly been, uh, the is increasingly being shown as a problem rather than a solution uh, in a lot of sectors. And so for my friends who work in tech companies, they're actually genuinely concerned for whether they're going to have a job in six months. Yeah I, yeah, I was wondering if you can kind of elaborate on China's relationship with tech. And you just said that they, <laughs> yeah, they were saying that it's, um, I, I like what I had read it, that I thought it was kind of helping them contain this pandemic, but you just said that there was also some problems now. Do you think? Uh, this, I should bracket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's economic, and that's also some friends of mine who work for um, like Dell, like companies that are Western companies, um, like kind of on both sides, right? Who work for Chinese companies in their American offices and then work for American companies in their China offices and such, but also companies that are very much so at kind of the crosshairs of broader technological supply chains. Okay. Um, because the other thing is that like when you're talking about tech or like, you know, like the number of different pieces it takes to assemble an iPhone or something like that. Right. Um, it is not just all in one company, right? Like there are actually very complex supply chains, some of which are in China, some of which are in the US, some of which are in other countries that have to come together um, to actually be able to build that product. That's actually true of um, hydrochloroquine is what? Yeah, plaquenol. Uh, Plaquenol. Yeah. So so like one of the other things that, for example, like people don't really realize is again, you have the, the drug company that produces the drug, um, and that might be, you know, in the U.S. In this case, I think it's actually Mexico, isn't it? Isn't it actually like a lot of it's produced in Mexico? Yes. Yeah. Uh, but regardless, people are like, how come the company is not just producing more, right? Right. Uh, and it's because in order to produce that drug, they have their own supply chain, right? Yeah. Their own inputs. And it turns out that a lot of the most basic level of inputs for a lot of pharmaceuticals are made in China. Um, and so when they were hit by the pandemic before, that whole, all of those factories were shut down for two months. And so they are now open and starting production again, but they, if you can imagine the waiting list yeah. uh, of orders given the current client, given how the pandemic has spread globally yeah. uh, and the fact that they were already two months behind production, right, right. It's, it's clogging the whole system. Um, wow. But your question was about tech and use of tech. Uh, I know we, yeah. So like uh, one of the other things that's really been interesting for me in terms of what I study, I'm really interested in uh, the relationship between technology firms and the state. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, 
particularly looking, uh, one thing that's been really interesting to me about this pandemic uh, has been kind of the symbiotic relationship between a lot of the tech companies and the state in terms of making the quarantine in Hubei and Wuhan function. Yeah. Uh, and that it was actually not, uh, I mean, like the state was very involved in getting supplies in, et cetera, right? Uh, but one of the other actors that was really involved in this process uh, were uh, Alibaba, were JD, uh, like all of these kind of tech firms um, who used the crisis uh, and the quarantine kind of as an opportunity, right? Yeah. Um, and so some of that is like to go in and say, we're here for you, we're going to help you implement this uh, quarantine and make sure supplies are getting in and out, etc. Um, in terms of kind of uh, cultivating political capital with the state in terms of getting kind of uh, having it be a display of nationalism to some extent, but also kind of as a platform to, ch to try out new technologies. Wow. Um, that suddenly like there's a city that everyone's on lockdown. And so you have companies going in and being like, okay, we're going to try delivering supplies with driverless cars. We're going to try to deliver supplies with mm -hmm. drones. Um, we're going to figure out, we're going to help the state figure out what is the additional infrastructure that is needed to, uh, you know, keep people safe and fed and all of these basic services going on. Um, and so it did not take a government order to make them do that. Like there is this symbiotic relationship between the state and tech companies in China that they were eager to volunteer uh, for yeah. various reasons to kind of be involved in this effort and prove very effective at it. Wow, that's really interesting. And do you see anything similar happening in the U.S. or is it just a relationship? <laughs> um, so actually, I was going to say, I'm, I'm laughing because... Uh, so, uh, yes, I think we're starting to see that a little bit. Uh, actually, I guess one thing, well, two things. Uh, one, there was a case, Elizabeth, New Jersey was um, doing social distance monitoring using drones. Um, and this was a case that was actually really interesting to me because the drones were donated by DGI, uh, which is a Chinese drone company that's based in Shenzhen. Oh, wow. um, and so again, a company that is looking at a crisis and being like, this is an opportunity to cultivate yeah. goodwill and cultivate political capital, not only domestically, but abroad, right? Yeah. Uh, Chinese tech companies are really great at never letting a crisis go to waste, so to speak. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so I was going to say one of the other stories is not just like how the quarantine was enacted in China, but also the degree to which they could do contact tracing, right? Right. Uh, and so like in cities like Nanjing and um, I mean, a variety of other uh, cities that have like really elaborate facial recognition systems, they were using facial recognition technologies to actually do contact tracing based on where someone went the day before or however many days before they uh, were diagnosed as COVID positive, right? Right. Um, and so that, a lot of that is more the state, though again, in partnership with tech companies. Then you also have the development of um, various kind of, uh, based on movement of people around the city, et cetera, companies are developing basically like scores that you're either green, yellow, or red. Um, and so increasingly as services are starting to uh, open in China, like you have to show your cell phone and be like, oh no, like I have a green rating. I'm allowed to like go out in the world, right? And I'm not, I'm of low concern. Um, but if you are deemed based on like uh, your data that you're a high risk for being, um, uh, from having COVID, uh, like you're going to have a red rating on your phone. And so like, it might be that the security guard in your statue is like, no, you're not supposed to leave still. You need to, you know, yeah. go back to your apartment and have a family member go out and do your shopping. Um, yeah. and again, this is something that's 
in conjunction with data that's clearly is uh, partially belonging to the state, but it, it's a app that's being created by a non-state-owned company. Company, yeah. um, Kind of, again, as uh, a display of uh, nationalism, of being like, let me show, how, show, show, uh, right. show the state and show society how helpful I can be in this crisis. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I think I've heard rumors that Apple and Google are starting to kind of develop that kind of contact tracing based on your cell phone technology. Mm -hmm. um, but we haven't, it hasn't been implemented yet. We don't really know yeah. the details of what it's going to look like. It's just not the same culture here for like the companies to do that. Yeah. Um, and to admit that they're monitoring. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, right. They probably, they probably have the data and we just, probably, that's, yeah. That's, that's the question, yeah. like what's being publicly, like the, the information or capacity is certainly there. Data is probably there. It's a matter of like, how do you get around some the of public the relations disaster yeah. that would, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. the legal yeah, barriers true. to doing this. Okay, that was our first episode of Missed Office Hours. Thanks for listening. And if there's a professor you would like to hear from, please let us know through the MISC social media. See you next time.